The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless, let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. I'm super excited to introduce our guest today. It's Joel Rubinson, founder of Rubinson Partners. And Joel and I had worked together many years ago at MPD. I can't believe it was so long ago, Joel, but it's great to reconnect and have you back on the show today. Welcome. Time to welcome this week's data guru. Thanks. Same here, Seema. Don't tell anybody how many years. I won't. I actually, <laughs> you have, you are a truly a data guru in our field. You have tons of experience in our industry. So I'd love to share with our listeners a little bit more about the work you've been working on. A lot of marketers are struggling with right now is trying to figure out, number one, all the fragmentation that's going on in, in advertising and trying to really figure out which advertising is the most effective. And I think you and I were talking that you've worked on a piece of research that's really shared some insight as to how to optimize that marketing spend. You're probably referring to the white paper I wrote with, which was called The Persuadables. And uh, this was really a groundbreaking piece of research, very surprising to me and the other participants. This white paper was, the research was conducted in conjunction with Viant, which is a leading digital ad network, and uh, Nielsen Catalina, NCS, which has a huge frequent shopper database. What I did was I intersected two analytic frameworks that had not been brought together yet was a consumer dynamics framework, which is how loyal is a consumer to a brand or how heavy is their buying rate towards that brand, heavy, medium, light, non-buyers of the brand, but buying the category, non-buyers of the category. And I intersected that with the theory of recency that was created by Erwin Efron, who's unfortunately no longer with us, but I was blessed to be able to get to know Erwin when I was chief research officer at the ARF and work with him. You know, what happened was we had lunch one day and we were taking his theories of recency. And all of a sudden, when I thought about it in the context of the digital age, which his main thing was more TV, but when I thought about it in the context of digital, I realized I started like drawing curves on the tablecloth. Well, it was one of those places where they put paper down, so I'm like drawing on the table, you know, and we came up with a whole new idea for how to do media optimization. And unfortunately, Erwin passed away before we found clients and participants, but I pursued it and I approached uh, Viant and, and they had a partnership with NCS. And so we, we tested it. And basically what it has to do with is classifying shoppers in the frequent shopper database on two dimensions. One is how much are they buying of the brand currently, heavy okay. medium light or non-buyers. Cross that by whether or not they were probabilistically close to an upcoming purchase of the category. More specifically, what does that mean? Probabilistic in buying that category. That's good because I was just going to say that. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> what does that mean? Holy <laughs> mackerel, what does that sound like? Okay, so what that means is this. We had 18 months 
of data on each shopper or database. So we were able to analyze their individual purchase cycle towards the category of interest. So these were three food products, but let's say they, one was laundry detergent, just as an example. How often does a given shopper buy laundry detergent? Well, one shopper might buy it every two months and another shopper as a large family might be buying it every week. We analyzed the individual purchase cycle for each shopper. And then we said, we're going to count an ad as being served recent to the upcoming purchase, if it's been four-fifths of that timeline from when they made their last category purchase. So, for example, going back to laundry detergent, let's say you buy it every five weeks. Well, if it's been four weeks since the last time you bought the category and now you see an ad for the particular brand of interest, we're going to count that as an ad that was served recently. Yes, that so makes think sense. Of it as you have levels of a degree of buying the brand crossed by recent or non-recent. Non-recent either means they didn't see any advertising at all or they, they saw advertising, but it wasn't like probabilistically close to that upcoming purchase. And again, the word probabilistic means we don't know for sure that someone is going to make a purchase in the next week or two. We just know probabilistically it's much more likely because it's been a long time for them since the last time they bought the category. So on the probabilistic shopping for the category, it's really category-based. And then you talked about heavy, medium, light. Is that based on brand or yeah. category? No, that's based on the brand of interest. The theory went like this. It was like if somebody was really, really loyal to a given brand, they probably wouldn't respond that much to advertising because they're going to buy it anyway. But if somebody was favorable to a brand, but not really, really loyal, they would be much more persuadable. So we went into it with that idea. Now, what happened was we couldn't completely operationalize levels of loyalty. So what we wound up doing just easier to break them up into heavy, medium, light. Now, what heavy, medium, light does is it kind of mixes together a little bit the loyalty to the brand with their heaviness of use of the category. But we felt, okay, that's okay. So what that means is your top one-third buyers, some are loyal to you, some are not as loyal, but there might be some that buy you half the time, but they buy the category a lot, so they still make it into that top group. It's kind of a mix. So here's the thing. Going into this experiment, I was thinking that if we found one group in this, think of it as like a 10-cell matrix, if we found one group that consistently produced twice the return on ad spend of anybody else, that would be a real victory. Now, return on ad spend is measured as incremental sales divided by incremental ad spending and it uses the Nielsen-Catalina methodology that they've used a thousand times before for clients. Methodology is valid, and it's in, in use by everybody. But I wasn't sure how high up was, you know? So I said, okay, well, 2x would be pretty darn good, sure. right? We could double, could double my return on money. If I buy stock A and I get twice the return of stock B, that's a good thing, right? I'd invest in it, yes. I, I know you would. Well, <laughs> guess what? It's not as good of an investment as you can make. Because it turned out there was one segment that we called the persuadables that consistently across the three campaigns actually returned 16 times the return on ad spend. First of all, it's not 16%. Right. <laughs> X. Now, what that means is the actual dollars were something like $25 or some even were, one brand was as high as $48. Well, let's just take $25. $25 means for every dollar 
in advertising you spend, you get $25 in incremental sales. That's pretty powerful. Seema, that's the investment you really... Yes. <laughs> Wait, so, let me ask you though, were the ads promotional or were they truly advertisements for the brands themselves to get okay. them... Okay, sneaky question because you didn't ask me that before, but I have an answer. Okay. One of the campaigns, I, first of all, I don't know for sure what the content was of the creative, but what we did do was we know one of the campaigns was purely display. One of the campaigns was purely video. Now, video would probably be very brand oriented, right? Yes. Because I love this and I, your family and, you know, love the planet. And one of the campaigns was a mix of display and video, or the insertion order for both types of advertising. My inference from this is that short-term performance is not really about the creative. Short-term performance is about targeting the right segment. Now, if short-term performance is about targeting the right segment, that means that a marketer has the latitude to use brand-building messages in performance moments. And you can drive performance as well as increase brand favorability all at the same time. Well, that's efficient as well. But I would say, is it that the creative doesn't matter or a good creative can be targeted to the right segment? Because if you have a dud creative to a segment that's persuadable, we might not get the result that we want, but they both have to work in conjunction with each other. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're testing campaigns that had significant ad spending behind them by big brands that I'm assuming we're using very professional creative agencies. In general, creative is going to meet a certain competency hurdle. And what we're saying is that so far we don't see evidence that the creative is what drives short-term performance as much as targeting the right segment does. Now, what that means even further is sometimes you create great creative like a man riding a horse or Mean Joe Green showing, throwing his t-shirt to a little kid in the Coke commercial. Those commercials come around like five years apart, right? Right. <laughs> Sometimes you, you spend money exactly the right way in terms of channels, but what works better for one brand might not work better for another. You know, some brands are more driven by TV, other brands are more driven by digital. Others are more driven by mobile within digital. The other thing about this is targeting the right segment seems to always pay off. It is a repeatable, winnable strategy, a winning strategy. So this should be really kind of like a basis for media planning. And right now it isn't so much because most media planning, at least that I've seen from working with clients, and I work with everyone in the ecosystem. I work with marketers, agencies, ad tech companies. So what I've been able to see from the companies that I work with is most media planning is top-down and reach-oriented. So it's like we have this very broadly defined universe, women 18 to 49, something like that. Get me the most reach for the least money. That's my starting point. And what I'm saying is you should start from the other end, what I call a waterfall. Start with that segment, the persuadables, that is going to return the highest return on ad spend possible, and then up your spending level to a saturation point. Now, I mentioned a $20 million brand was one that we were looking at as we were thinking about media optimization from this approach. But you know, Geico is reported to spend about 250 million in digital alone. And that's essentially a one brand company. 
actually there's evidence in the marketplace that you could take your media weight level up to $200 million. So how do you spend $200 million? Well, that means you're spending a, a dollar or $2 in media weight instead of 20 cents in media weight against every individual who's in that segment. It's from a frequent shopper database or in your own DMP. You have this number one target priority segment. Use as much media weight as you possibly can until you reach saturation levels. Then when you reach saturation, you move on to the next segment, then the next segment. It's like a waterfall, and each level eventually fills up, and then it goes to the next level. Now, when I say then you go on to the next level, I don't mean sequentially. I just mean in terms of a budgeting process. When you do that, what I found was something very interesting. It turns out that most media plans, 60% of the money that's spent on digital is absolutely wasted. I've heard that as well. Meaning you're spending a buck in advertising, you're not even getting a buck back in retail sales. So that makes no sense. So move that money away from that waste, away from those segments and redeploy it to the high return on ad spend segments and then take the money that's left over and spend it in other higher yield ways based on context and and other kinds of levers that you can possibly use. But what has prevented companies from looking at this more closely? I mean, it's a lot of dollars that we're talking about. Yeah, there's really two, there's two things. One is many people are rooted in traditional thinking and conventional thinking. It's hard to get fired for conventional thinking. They used to say no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Wait a minute, didn't you work there? Yes, I did. <laughs> so there you go. And by the way, for the record, I didn't get fired. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. So there you go. That's validation. Yeah, there you go. Now, seriously, so conventional thinking has a certain staying power to it. That's that's one element. Other element is there are other schools of thought out there that have a fair number of adherents to them that I think are really misguided in the digital age. So the Ehrenberg Bass Institute preaches penetration, they preach reach, they preach targeting is a wrong theory. So you take conventional thinking, you enrobe it with some academic science and evidence and it reinforces and hardens those beliefs, and it makes you uh, less open-minded, not just new ideas, but a radically different way of thinking, where you're just totally flipping the paradigm on its head, basically. That makes sense. I mean, I think change is hard. Taking those risks are big deals. I would be curious, what's your perspective in terms of some of these newer companies that have lots of data, like a Netflix or, or media and entertainment, are they doing things differently from your uh, knowledge or understanding? Yeah, I mean, just to show you my, my thinking about this and my predictions, about a year ago, I wrote a series of blogs predicting that Amazon was going to become the number three company in terms of ad revenues. Now, at that point, everyone was still kind of thinking of Amazon as a retailer and transforming that space. And maybe there was Alexa that they were thinking about and so on. I looked at the first party data that they had on what people were buying and what they were searching for. I don't know if you know this, but more product search actually occurs on Amazon than on Google. Interesting. I did not know that. When you think about the data that they have to be able to, to create the kind of behavioral targets that were the basis of the Persuadables white paper, my feeling was that they would be able to just make a huge impact 
in the advertising space. And, you know, marketers aren't completely happy that there's a duopoly, Facebook and Google, right? Right. So anyway, so I predicted for a while that companies with that kind of data could really transform the advertising space. Now, since then, I believe Amazon, they just had their first $2 billion ad quarter. So they're clearly positioned to move to number three. I mean, they can really take it as far as they want. Now, Netflix, Netflix actually has the same kind of data. They don't have quite the same reach, but boy, they can, they can create unbelievable segments of what people's preferences are, how that must relate to their, you know, their lifestyles and, and values and so on. And uh, if they chose to move into that space, I haven't heard that they are, but if they chose to move into that space, it really would be an amazing offer that they would bring to marketers that I'm sure they would take notice of and really change. It would be very disruptive thinking. So I'm a big believer. And I think at some point they're doing so well in what they're currently doing. I follow their stock price. (laughs) Their stock has really, you know, been amazing over the past year or so. I think it's doubled or tripled. I think at some point a company is looking for that next big growth idea. I would not at all be surprised to hear that Netflix is moving into that space in some way. Joel, what do you, if you had to make a prediction for the future as it relates to the research space with Mm -hmm. all this stuff coming in, artificial intelligence, blockchain, more emphasis on analytics, less on traditional market research, where do you think we're going to end up? Or do we actually ever end up anywhere? We just continue to evolve. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, of course, we're going to continue to evolve. I think there'll always be a need for research. One thing, Seema, because I know you're involved in this, it's good that surveys will always be needed. Yes. Okay. And I'm going to tell you why. As exciting as digital is, Mm -hmm. and digital uh, now, I believe, is past TV in terms of ad revenues in the U.S., and mobile alone will probably pass TV at some point. It's not that TV is declining. It's just fairly stagnant or growing just a little bit, And but digital is just growing tremendously. It's this whole thing of, of addressable advertising, so you don't have to buy the whole audience. So anyway, so I think, though, that with this great promise of digital, original idea that, gee, as an exhaust of the digital process, we get this amazing data to analyze that we can put into like multi-touch attribution models. And it's all true, but there are limitations. So it gets a little sobering, takes a little bit of the, the bloom off the rose when you start realizing that the largest providers, the largest publishers in terms of ad revenues don't really share data. The information, right. So what happens is that there's a need for surveys. Learn everything you want from digital exhaust. You have to measure certain things based upon surveys. Now, I would make sure that I wasn't confusing myself by thinking I'm in the data business when really I'm in the study business. And you need to get out of being in the study business and move into the data-driven analytics business. Interesting. So you have to master how you're going to integrate your marketing research survey data with digital information to present a much more complete view of the issue that you are trying to inform or the prediction models that you're trying to create. If you have two research companies, one 
that hasn't onboarded their data in any way, has no ability to connect it to digital, doesn't understand digital, doesn't know what programmatic is, then you have another company that completely gets it, I'm betting my money on the company that completely gets it. I'd agree with you as well. Joel, thank you so much for joining me today. And I definitely would love to have you back in the future. Okay, count me in. All right, cool. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Data Gurus Podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.datagurusepodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.datagurusepodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.